0: Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for coming. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 28. The norm here at Sojourn is that we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse. We just finished with the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we have in the wings, kind of here in a nine or so weeks, we're going we're gonna to be going through Genesis, the book of Genesis. But here for the next eight, nine weeks, we are going to look at together, why sojourn exists, and not just why do we exist, that's this week, but what do we prioritize? Why, what do we feel like is important here? And so this is what we're looking at today, why sojourn exists. Uh, would you guys pray with me as we begin to open up God's Word? Father, help us. May your name be hallowed and glorified and honored and held in, in right esteem as we open your Word would you give us what we need from your word? Would you feed us? May we be hungry and thirsty for you and for your word and what you'd have for us. And would you help us to conform our lives to the way you have called us to live? May we submit to your will, saying your will be done in us as it is in heaven. And God, would you protect us, unify us, bring us together? May we unite under this word that is truth. And God, may you receive all the glory and honor and the praise in all of this. It is in Jesus name we ask for these things. Amen. I think it's it's not an overstatement to say that if we were to ask people what is the purpose of the church, right? Why does your church exist? Like there's there's it's a little bit muddied. Not only with, with the churches themselves of why they exist but also with individuals within it do they do they actually know why the church exists there's there's lots of ideas of this we we exist to meet the needs of the poor or we exist only to kind of give knowledge out to believers there's all sorts of concepts and ideas of, of why the church exists and and here 's the the thing is that we want you to know why sojourn exists why we are here in Enid and not just to know it but to grasp it and to be able to repeat it we want you to to know why we exist and be able to share that with somebody else should they ask you. But beyond that, we we don't just want you to know it and be able to repeat, we want you to own it. Because this isn't just uh, for me or, or for pastor, this is for everybody. Why do we exist? Let's own that together and live it out faithfully. And so here's the reason Sojourn exists. This is on the screen as well. But as a church of Jesus Christ, we exist to glorify God by making disciples through evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints. That seems like a mouthful, we'll work through it together, but if, if you come out of here and just say, like, we can shorten this and say, why do we exist as a church? Why is Sojourn here? We exist to make disciples. So we are not here to be a better version of the church down the street. We, we may or may not be that. We are seeking to be faithful, and we are here to make disciples, and so we're, we're not here to be a better version of another church. We're here to make disciples, and the question then is, if this is our statement, I didn't cite a text here, right? Is that biblical? Does this fit in with the Scripture, or am I just coming up with this on my own? Well, this is why we turn to Matthew chapter 28. This is the time after Jesus' resurrection, before he ascends into heaven... He gathers his disciples and he gives them this great commission, as we call it. This is kind of like graduation, a commencement address from Jesus to these disciples. This is marching orders for the disciples here on earth. And so he calls his disciples together. So after the resurrection, before the ascension, he calls them together. And you read in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, first of all, what's a disciple? Right? He's gathering these disciples. What, what are disciples? Well, a disciple is one who enters into relationship with someone to learn from them. This is a, a teacher who shares his ideas and way of life with, with someone. And that someone is a student, a disciple, someone who learns from Jesus, but also someone who shapes and conforms their life to Jesus. A few weeks ago, my wife and I looked out the window and we saw a mother duck walking down our street. It's a pretty busy street. We live on Hoover. Walking down the street with like four or five little baby ducks. And they were just following just right in line with the, the mother duck. Like everything she did, they did. If she stopped, they like halted on it like exactly at the same moment. If she jumped up on the curve, they did too. And Catherine was rooting them on that they might not get hit by a car, right? They were little disciples, right? They were learning from their mother duck. They were, they were following every move. They were conforming their movements to the movement of their teacher, of their d- disciple maker. And this is what a disciple is. Disciples of Jesus learn from him and live like him. So they start to look like him. They start to grow into this image of him, like a little baby duck would grow up and look like mother duck. First John, I think, says this well. It says in 1 John 2, Verse 5 and 6, it says, By this we may be sure that we are in him. That is, we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in him, whoever says he's a Christian, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there's this learning and there's this living. There's this conforming our lives to the life of Jesus Christ. And these 11 disciples are, are these people who have responded to the call of Jesus. Some of them, he said, follow me. And they left all that they had to learn from Jesus and to conform their lives after his, to, to live their lives like him. But it is noteworthy to think here that there are 11 disciples, it says in verse 16. Now, if you've been in the church often, like you, you might recognize that there's something weird here because often when you hear about the disciples, you hear about twelve. So what's going on here? Well, one of them is missing. One of them has rejected Jesus. His name was Judas. He, he betrayed Jesus, and he, he left. And, and at this point in time, we think that Judas has, has killed himself. He hung himself. There's a stark reminder here. Judas followed along just like these other disciples. Judas was right there with them in close relationship with Jesus. And yet now he's not being called up onto this mountain. You can know a lot about Jesus. You can spend a lot of time with Jesus. You might know the facts and information and still not be a disciple of Jesus. See, he learned from Jesus. He listened to him. He followed him around, but he refused in the end to shape his life, to conform his life to the life of Christ. When Jesus goes to the cross, Judas leaves after betraying him and is overwhelmed with, with burden and guilt, refusing, even to the end, to submit himself to the life of Christ. Disciples are those who don't just have this head knowledge of Jesus. It's not that we don't just know facts and information about him. We don't just know all the the depth of, of who he is as a person. We also conform our lives to his. We submit our will to his will. Not just we spend time with him and learn from him, we also conform our lives to him. And Jesus' disciples pattern their lives after his. They conform their lives to his will. And so the question for us as we think about these 11 and not 12 is, are we disciples? And that's a different question than saying, do you come to church or do you know about Jesus? Have you heard about these things? Do you, have you been trained up in these things? Have you patterned your life after Jesus? Have you given him your all and say, like, I want to conform my life to yours. Teach me that I might be transformed, that I might be changed and look like you. We're walking like Jesus walked. And so are we conforming our lives to him? Are we following Jesus? Are we walking as he walked, as 1 John calls us to, conforming our lives and our wills to him? And that's, that's what it means to be a disciple. And so this is, before we even get into this commission, we need to know what it means to be a disciple. But but when Jesus has these 11 disciples, what does he do here? He calls them together. He brings them together. So if, if we are a disciple, then God has called us together, just like he called these eleven together. He called them together to learn. He called them together to teach them. He called them together to send them, to commission them, to command them. Eleven of them come together. He doesn't go to them individually. They come together to do this thing. And they come together on a mountain at the direction of their Lord Jesus. Eleven together a group of disciples. And he, and this is the reality from the scripture is that God has been calling together a people for his name since the beginning. He's always been doing this. You think about creation. He doesn't create one person, he creates multiple people and then what does he tell them? He gives them this command. Be fruitful. Make more people. We need more people. Be fruitful and multiply. In the flood, he doesn't just save one family saves multiple families, and he tells them the same thing. Be fruitful. In the Exodus, he doesn't just pull out Moses and Aaron and maybe a, a select few faithful people. He pulls out an entire nation. He, he pulls them out to be a, a, a glory to his great name. And it's said that there's about 600,000 men with women and children. So over a million people God pulls out of a life in slavery to be for the his name and for the fame of his name, in all the earth. So he pulls out a nation. In the exile, the, 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 the Jewish people, the Israelites, they're unfaithful to their God. They get taken over by other people. They, they're sent out into exile as a, a judgment from God. And what does he do? He doesn't just save few of them. He says, I'm going to bring many of them back. He preserves a remnant of many people from this exile and brings them back. The disciples, he doesn't call one, he calls 12 of them. And he hasn't just called us to walk individually, he has called us together as a group of people. God has been doing this since the beginning. I like what one author says, when he says that God's eternal plan has always been to display his glory, not just through individuals, but through a corporate body. So it matters that he says these 11 come together on this mountain to meet with Jesus. It matters that we have churches, and it matters that we have local churches where we gather together as disciples. This is how we are to do things, and these things all matter to God because this is how he's been working. This is the way he's always ordered it always done it from the very beginning is that he calls people together to be a glory to his name. He wants to spread his fame, yes, through you individually, but not just through you individually, through you individually being a part of a body, a corporate body going out for the glory of God's name. To do it on your own is to reject God's way of doing things. It's to rebel against God. So we don't do it on our own. We we are called together as a church. As a church, we exist to do these things. And so 11 go up to a mountain, and they see the risen Lord. If you look in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I think to rightly see Jesus is to worship him. If we see him for who he is, if we see him rightly, we will worship him. It means they fell down on the ground before him, giving him praise and honor. There's adoration here. There's love here for Jesus. They are falling down to worship him. And as a church, we exist to, to to glorify God, to worship God, to be about his praise, to adore him, to love him. And disciples do that. They worship their king. They worship their Lord. So, eleven here come together, and some worship them. But what does the rest of it say? Some doubted. Some doubted. It's likely here, at this point, that they've already seen Jesus. And so, this is interesting that some are still doubting. Now, it, it could be that... The, they don't know how to respond. Like, this is a weird situation. We followed you, and then you died, and we're just all in this upheaval. We don't know how to respond to you now that you're this man who was dead, but now you're alive, and we could see you and touch you, and you eat fish, and all that. Like, maybe they don't know how to respond, and so they're just, uh, I don't know, summed up with doubt. I, I don't know if that's what's going on. It could be. Either way, there's some, there's some fear here. There's some doubts. There's some uncertainty what's going on. Maybe they're a little bit nervous with how Jesus is going to respond to them. Because in, in Jesus' darkest hour, they're falling asleep, and then they leave him, right, in the garden? Jesus gets arrested and taken on. Only a couple follow him around, and, and one of them betrays him. But the rest of them, they've, they've left, they've ran, they've hid. Maybe they're ashamed. Maybe they don't know how to respond to Jesus or don't know how he's going to respond to them. But here's what happens is that Jesus doesn't dismiss them. He hasn't sent them off. After all the ups and downs, Jesus is gracious to them. There was this friend that we had in Kentucky, and he would, in in genuine sincerity, ask ask some people about Christianity. He had questions about Jesus. He had questions about what it meant to, to be a believer, and he'd go and ask these questions to other people who said that they were believers, and over and over again, they would just start giving him the stiff arm, thinking, he's just trying to make a fool out of us. Or he's just trying to pick a fight when he was just, I want to know these things. I don't know about Jesus. I don't know how this all works out. It seems like there's some problems here in my mind. And so time after time, he does this. until he comes to one who he asks this question to, and and she basically says, like, I I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I'll, I'll go find out what I can, and then I'll get back with you. But that sense of humility and openness to being questioned changed his heart around and he was drawn by Jesus Christ and saved. Now, I think that there ought to be room for this. I think there needs to be room for those who are coming, and we just don't know how to respond. There's, there's some doubt. We want committed disciples at Sojour, no doubt about it, but that doesn't mean that we have it all figured out. We don't. I mean, Just tell us plainly, like if you think you have it figured out, you probably have less figured out than what you really think. We don't have it figured out, and, and there's room for, for, for doubts. We don't always respond rightly, especially to Jesus and who he is and his greatness. I'd say there's fewer times that we respond rightly than more. So there's, there's room for questions. There's room for doubts. There's, there's room for unbelief here. That's kind of what's going on. There's something that they're not believing. But more importantly, just more than that, sojourn, there's room for that with God. He doesn't just send them away and say, forget about your doubts and concerns. You ought to know by now. He's gracious to them. And it seems like there's room for this with Jesus, that he still cares about them. He doesn't just throw them to the side and say, I can work with other people who don't have these same kind of doubts that you guys have. Now, we don't want to stay there, right? We want to move to those people who are worshiping. We don't want to stay with these doubts. We want to address them. We want to take them to God and let him answer them in full We want to move into worship, but we have to know we haven't fully arrived. And there's room for those kind of doubts and things going on here. Jesus doesn't dismiss them. And in fact, what he keeps doing is he keeps discipling them. He keeps training them, keeps teaching them. He addresses them as disciples. And so wherever you are today, maybe you do have doubts and concerns and fears or unbelief. What do I do with this Jesus? and, And who is he? And I don't know what it means to be a disciple. There's room for those kind of things here, but don't handle those things on your own. Eleven are coming together, and they're working these things out together. But Jesus addresses them as disciples, and he calls them, and he calls us, no matter where we're at, to follow him. Come. Come. If you're weary and heavy laden, you have doubts and concerns and questions, come to me. I'll give you rest. We, we, We sincerely turn to Jesus with all of our doubts, our fears, our concerns, our unbelief, our questions. He can give us rest, and only he can give us rest ultimately and finally. And so he invites us, take my yoke, be my disciples. He he does this based on what he's done. He can be open to this because he lived the life perfectly knowing that no one else would and that he took the death that other people, sinners, doubters, these unbelievers deserved upon himself. And as one who is risen from the dead, he says, come to me, be my disciples, follow me. I can handle those doubts and those concerns, because here we have the risen Christ we're seeing here. He can handle these things. It doesn't take perfection to follow Jesus. We're not looking for that. Like, you can't just come into the church when you're perfect. If that were true, then no one would be a member. No one would be a member of the church. So there's room for this. But we do have to be committed the following as faithfully as possible as we'll see as the commission continues. And so Jesus calls us as well. Whether we're adoring him or fearing and doubting, he calls us, follow me. Be my disciple. Take my yoke upon you. Follow me. And he teaches and he addresses and he commands. And this is what he's doing to us as well. But, but you got to ask, right? is. Is this great commission for us? It seems like this 11 was a specific unit of people that have followed Jesus around. So does he give whatever he's going to give next? Does he give that just to them or is that really for us today? Well, I think that the answer is overwhelmingly this, this is still for disciples. This is still for people who have followed Jesus. You see, he says at the end, we'll get to this as well, but he says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Whereas these 11, one generation, and they're all wiped out. And so Jesus couldn't be faithful to his promise if this promise didn't also extend out to other disciples. That's just one piece of evidence for it that I think is pretty overwhelming. So as long as this age continues, so does this promise, so does this command as disciples. He still is commanding us to do these things that he calls us to. And so Jesus appears to these 11 imperfect, wavering disciples. He addresses them, he teaches them, and he commands them. Verse 18, he says this, Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think about this. People are doubting him. They're coming, they're seeing the risen Lord, and they're looking upon him, doubting him, wavering. And where am where I supposed to handle this? How am I supposed to do this? And what does he say to them? In great comfort and grace, he doesn't say, Get out of here. He says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth. What, a, what an amazing comfort from Jesus. An amazing piece of grace. You don't have to have it all figured out. I have all authority. It's been given unto me. Jesus, the eternal Son, took on flesh, lived this perfect life, obeying perfectly the will of the Father, died the death that sinners deserved, not that he deserved, was raised from the dead, and now says, I have all authority. I am supreme over all. You might remember in Matthew chapter 4, this is another mountain. Satan is on this mountain, and he's with Jesus, and he tempts Jesus. He says this, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? Be gone, Satan. He doesn't give in to that. He doesn't give in to the temptation from Jesus. Jesus here on another mountain, after doing the will of the Father, after dying the death that, that we deserved in our place, after being raised from the dead, comes and has a much better statement than what Satan could offer. He says, now I have all authority. It's all mine. I'm supreme over all of it. The one who has defeated death is speaking as one who has all authority. And one who has all authority is addressing disciples. Now, if you will let me kind of get my nerd on for a second here. We're going to hit up a little Lord of the Rings. I do this too often sometimes, so I will refrain for the next several weeks, but I have to get this one in. You might remember this isn't in the movie, this is in the book. There's this man, he's named Faramir. He's sick and he's in this houses of healing. He has what they call the black breath from this fight against the enemy, the, the forces of evil and darkness. And, and he is sick beyond any normal healing, but there's this prophecy going around that the king, the true and rightful king, is, has these hands, he's the hands of a healer. And we know that in this book and in the movies, Aragorn is this true and rightful king who's going to, to take up the throne and he is going to be the reigning and ruling rightful king. And Aragorn comes. This is one who's this king who has the hands of a healer. He puts his hand on Faramor's head and those who watched said they, they felt this. Some, some great struggle was going on. Have you ever felt like, I mean, I think about Faramir being under this black belt. you ever felt under the shadow Full of doubt, no press. I can't get out of this. What can I do to get out from underneath this weight that I'm carrying, this sickness and this burden? And so this, this king is touching him. And Aragorn, this king, his face, he, he grew weary with weariness, grew gray with weariness, and he called the name of Faramir. And it said it as if Aragorn himself was removed from them and walked afar in some dark veil, calling for one that was lost. It's as if Aragorn, the king, is entering into the death and the darkness of Faramir. Does that ring a bell with some, some scriptural things? Jesus faces the death and the darkness that we deserve. He, he takes that upon himself to call out his disciples as Aragorn is calling out Faramir. And it says that suddenly... Faramir stirred and he opened his eyes and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him, and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes. So you're seeing 2 Corinthians 4 here, or the disciples here on this mountain, they're seeing Jesus rightly as the risen, rightful king. And Faramir says, My Lord, you called to me and I come. What does the king command? Faramir sees the king who defeated darkness, this black breath, this death. He defeats sickness and he comes, as the disciples come to this mountain, and he says, what do you command? I'm yours to command. And Aragorn responds, walk no more in the shadows, but awake. You are weary Rest a while and take food and be ready when I return. And Faramir says this, he says, I will, Lord, for who would lie idle when the king has returned? And Jesus has faced death. He has faced the darkness, the black breath, and he has defeated it and called our names in the midst of it, calling to us as disciples, as one who is this king, this rightful king who has the hands of a healer, calling out to us to be his disciples. I have all authority. I can defeat and have defeated that death. And he calls to them and his disciples should come to him and say to him, what do you command? You've just defeated that death and you've called me out of it. What do you command now, Lord? For who would lie idle when the king has returned? The king on this mountain has returned with all authority in heaven and on earth, and he commands his disciples now. And in any true church of Jesus Christ... There is truly only one chief and lead pastor, and his name is Jesus. He is the one who has all authority. It is not me or these other pastors here. It is not any deacon. It is not any elding or ruling board. It is Jesus Christ who is the chief shepherd. He is the one who has all authority on earth, and so I don't think that we should fight against that because it seems like he could squash that out pretty quickly. He has all authority. He is the one who leads us forward. There's only one pastor. And so if you are a disciple, this is a command for you from the risen king. And there should not be idleness when the king has returned. We should say, what do you command? How could I be idle when the king has risen from the dead? And because he has all authority, whatever he's going to tell them to do, whatever he's going to ask of them, he certainly has the supply to make sure that it gets done. So, we haven't read on to verse 19, but he could say, run through a brick wall, and his disciples should say, Yes, if this is what the king commands, I will do it. You have all authority, I'll do what you say. He doesn't say, run through a wall. He says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, I hope that you've heard that a million times. Go make disciples. But, but often in the church, what can happen is, is that we hear that kind of language so often that it kind of gets stale. It, it sounds so, so common. And that's where I think we need to kind of be woken up a little bit. And this is where I like this author. He says this, when Jesus announced the commission to his disciples, he was declaring War. When Jesus grants the Great Commission, he is signaling the onset of the last days, and the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth means that God has indeed granted him the nations as his inheritance, Psalm 2 there. Thus, the Great Commission is a decisive stage in the warfare of God against the serpent of Eden. But don't just hear, go make disciples, I've heard that a million. Here, that God is declaring war as one who has all authority. He's sending out his troops, declaring war on the enemy as one who has all authority. So you know that the victory is certain. And Jesus commands his disciples and he says of them, go make disciples. And we ought to understand that they're not making disciples of Peter or John. They're making disciples of Jesus. Now I have to think here, is there a better way? Like if we have this huge war that we're declaring, and this is a big deal, the serpent of Eden kind of, he's a big enemy. This is a pretty big task, making disciples of all nations. Is there a better way? Angels, they seem pretty powerful. Send them. I like to read about special forces. It seems like if you have a a unique task that requires like a unique, you know, kind of skill set, send in the special forces. They will get the job done. Shouldn't Jesus do that? Like, find those special forces among your people, God, and send them out to make disciples. But God, in his wisdom, and in, and get this, in his grace, in his grace, he has chosen just normal, everyday, ordinary, weak disciples. We're not the special forces, although as much as I really want to be, we're all on the front line. If you're a disciple, you have been called. God has graciously said, I'm not going to... Put this out to the, to the angels or to the special forces of Christians, if such a thing exists. I'm going to give this to the ordinary and to the weak. You guys get to join in my plan that I am doing that is going to defeat the serpent of Eden that's going to make disciples of all the nations. This is what Jesus is doing with all authority that he has. And so he has given us normal, ordinary, weak people what we need to fulfill this commission. And as we say, he says, go make disciples. Discipleship happens in relationship. It always happens in relationship. And this is why here at Sojourn, we value deep relationships. We value getting to know one another on a deep level. This is why we have home groups. This is why we're doing this thing on Sunday night. We want depth in our relationship here because discipleship always happens in those relationships. One pastor says this, programs, programs, Preaching, small groups, worship experiences—these can all assist in the discipleship process. But the most essential element in the relation is the relationships of individual believers. This is how discipleship happens. You want to go make disciples, start making relationships. You want to be a disciple, get in relationship with other believers. But look what Jesus tells them: that the target isn't a select area. A lot of these guys are from a certain area. There's some from Galilee, some from Jerusalem. They were kind of centered out of Jerusalem. Is that the target area? No, that's not the target area. Is there a select people? Is it just the Jews? No, there's there's not a select people here. He says all nations, all peoples, that's the target. It's a pretty big target. Disciples, it says, are to go and do this. This has the connotation of as you are going, make disciples. And so this can be fulfilled for disciples where they are right now. As you're going, as you're living, you are to be making disciples. As a disciple, go make disciples. So think about your relationships that exist right now. Where, where do you live? Think about your children. If, if, you're, if you have children in your home, you are to make disciples there. If you, your parents are not believe, start making disciples there. Think about where you live and your neighbors. Think about work and relationships that so you have to start making disciples. Where do you like to go to have fun? Do you like to go to baseball? Start making disciples. Like, think about all these things through this lens of I am a disciple who is to be making disciples. But if we say that it's only as you go that you do these things, and I think that in, in our hearing of that, we will miss and, and fail to be faithful to this command. And here's why I say that, because if we're just doing it as we go, then we will never be faithful to go to all the nations. And so we don't want to fail to to see what else Jesus is saying. He said, yeah, it's as you go, you're to be making disciples in everyday, normal, ordinary life. You are to be doing those things. That is to be faithful. But also, there are those who are to cross lots of boundaries, cultural boundaries, geographic boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, linguistic boundaries, all these things. If we are to be faithful to make disciples of all nations, we're going to have to cross those things. And certainly that is what Jesus is commanding here as well to go and, and to make disciples. We have to look to the nations, to the na- to all peoples around the world, people who have never heard the gospel. We're to go make disciples there. The stats right now, pretty staggering. There's 7.3 so billion people in the world. There are 3 billion people that are unreached. That's a pretty conservative estimate. 3 billion of the earth is is unreached, which means there are less than 5%, just almost non-existent group of professing disciples there. And so to fail to see that we need to cross boundaries to get to those areas is to fail this commission. There are 24 million, 24 million that are completely unengaged, which means there is no movement of the gospel there at all. They may not even have a single believer trying to reach them with The gospel and I hear that so often it is it is overwhelming like that's a huge number and we are such a small church in the middle of Oklahoma we are think about that like in reality and the scope of things we have 7.3 billion people we're just a tiny few in Enid Oklahoma and so that seems overwhelming for me here and actually they don't even need that stat. like reaching my neighbor seems overwhelming too All these things seem overwhelming at times. I I can't do this. And may we not forget, though, who is commissioning. Because this is the one who's sending us, is the one who has all authority. All authority has been given to him, and he is the one who is sending us. And if he wants it done, he can give us what we need to get it done. And so he uses the ordinary, the weak people to, to do this. He doesn't need the strong He needs the obedient. He needs the faithful. And this is what we are to be. Your will be done. you, You tell me and I will go. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you can make disciples and you can be a part of making disciples to the ends of the earth, to all the nations of the world. We exist together to do this. We exist together to do this. He doesn't just send one. He says to these 11, this group, we could call this kind of like a church here. It's a little bit different here. It's an odd situation. But he calls them together to send them. He calls a church together to send us to make disciples. Not you are a disciple by yourself. You go make more disciples. No, you are disciples together. You guys go make disciples of all the nations. And so the question then is, how how do we do this? How do we do this? Our risen king, he, he doesn't leave us uninformed. To Keep going in verse 19. He told us, go make disciples. But he says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you. So there's, there's kind of two ways that he tells us. Baptizing them and you're, you're teaching them. That's how we are to make disciples. This is how we are to go about this task that he has given us. We are to be going, baptizing, and teaching them. Baptism is this, this act of initiation into the Christian life. It's this response to conversion. saying, I, I am now deciding to follow Jesus, to live like him, conform my life to his. And when you do that, you should be baptized. You, you are saying that my allegiance has switched from this world or from my own agenda to Jesus' now. You're saying, I am going public with my faith because I've switched allegiances to Jesus Christ. We're to do this in the name of the Trinity, That is to say, once again, we are not making, we're not trying to make more sojourners. I don't need more people that follow Dylan. I'm trying to make people who follow Jesus, and so we baptize them not into my name, not into sojourn, into the name of God. Like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're making disciples of Jesus. So we should go and we should baptize. This is part of the going. But should they say, should we just go and say, like, Jesus commanded me to baptize and so I'm going to baptize you. Like I'm here to get you baptized because that's my commission and he has all authority, so you better submit to this or something else is coming to you, right? This has been done in history by the way. There are many groups, some of them have been Christian in the past. That they will go to you and they will force baptism upon you thinking that they're being faithful to the great commission. I say like and some people say like you will convert or I will chop your head off. This is reality. And it's happening even now across the world. Maybe not of Jesus Christ. We hope not because that would not be the way he would want to go about it. But is that what we're to do? Like we're just go out and just baptize him. Well, baptism, we have to remember it shouldn't just occur. It, shouldn't, it doesn't just happen. What baptism is saying here is there's, there's this implication of lostness, that people don't know who Jesus is, that they don't know what it means to be a disciple. They don't know what it means to believe in him. And there's also this implication of, of lostness and they need, their need for conversion. When we're saying people are lost, we're saying you need to know Jesus. You, you need to be converted. You need to switch your allegiance from the parents of the power of the air, Ephesians, to the one true risen King. And when you do that, that's when baptism comes. But how is someone brought to that point of, of conversion, of being transformed, of needing to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Now, I think that the Scripture is clear. It tells us. You read in Romans chapter 10. Starting in verse 14, he says, How then will they call on whom they have not believed? That's a great question. Now, he asks a lot of good questions here. How are they to believe in him and whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They're preaching, there's proclamation, and there's of good news, of the gospel. But they have not called, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. And so faith, belief, following after Jesus, where you are a disciple, comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ, that good news, that gospel message. This is what's going on here. You send out the message. You are faithful to proclaim the gospel. The gospel has to be heard, and it has to be believed. There's a quote that says, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. It is necessary to use words, if they do not hear, if they are deaf, like we sign it out to them. They need to know the message. The content is vital. You are not a disciple of Jesus if you have not believed in the gospel. If you have not heard it, if you have just seen it, you do not know Jesus. And so we want to proclaim the gospel. Paul says in Romans one I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, he says, the word of the cross, this good news that you have a substitute who took his sins, your sins, upon himself, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so disciples, we are to go and proclaim that message, and that message is the message that is powerful and can transform. See, the gospel isn't just this disciple's message. It's their Lord's message that he told them to proclaim to all the nations. The gospel is our message. And so no one just converts because we threaten them or because we say, hey, you have to get baptized. Let's just get this done. I'll be faithful. No, we we go out and we proclaim the gospel. And when someone's converted and transformed, then we, we baptize. I think you see this pretty clearly, this way of doing things in Acts chapter two. Peter steps up boldly and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says in in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. He proclaimed the gospel and he's calling them, Repent. Stop following your way. Follow Jesus' way and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. This is how it goes. Like they hear the gospel, they're transformed by it, then they're baptized. This is what's understood when he, when he says, go make disciples, baptizing them. So the gospel's proclaimed, it's believed, and then there's baptism. And as a church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples through evangelizing the lost, I said. Amen. Through baptizing. This is what's wrapped up in saying baptism. There's this idea that people are lost. This, our statement fits the Great Commission here. So we must be a church that proclaims the gospel as the only message that saves, because there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved other than Jesus. We go out and proclaim that, and when people are transformed by that powerful message, then we baptize them. Amen. Now Enid is, is an over place. That might be an understatement, I guess. There's 200 churches or so, 64,000. There's a lot of churches. And I would say this, I think that there's there's still lacking the gospel. Like there's, there's a lot of places to go, but is the gospel really the message of salvation for people? I think that we are lacking so often that that gospel message as our message of the church. Here in Enid, 64,000 people or so. The, the largest group, the fastest growing group of, of any religious group is the group that doesn't identify with any church whatsoever, most commonly known in, in broader culture as nuns. They, they are nothing. They're, they're not following anything. This is a, it's a pretty big number, 26,000 almost in Enid, and it is growing by far faster than any other denominational or uh, some sort of church number out there. 26,000 are are Nothing. And, and, and we have 200 churches here who, who have the message of the gospel to, to go and get these people. Now, that's just the people who are saying we don't believe. We're not in any part of the church. That's not actually the people who are still going to church and might not know Christ. Might be kind of the Judas type that, that they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know him. And so we have, we have work to do. And God has placed us in Enid right? to do this, to be about this task of evangelizing the lost, of, of making disciples here of the, the over-church, of the under-church, of the de-church. We're to go to them with a the message of the gospel. You see, the message works for, for everybody. There's no one who's kind of a little bit more predisposed to being transformed by this message than another because we're all lost and dead in our sins before Christ. And so we go with this message. But the Great Commission doesn't just stop with, with baptism. It doesn't just stop with go and baptize them and, and that's it. it. doesn't just say, go save them and then say, good luck to them and move on your way. He continues on in Verse 20, when he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if we're, we're going to have a baby in a few months, if we just have this baby and we, all right, new birth has happened, let's just kick it out now. It's time to get out of here, baby. Like, Go take care of things on your own. That wouldn't work very well, would it? Like, they cannot sustain themselves. Like, if you had a, a mama bird, gets baby birds hatched from the eggs and just kicks them out of the nest. I know they do this pretty soon. But if they just did it immediately, like, there would be major problems. Like, they would sink down to the ground and probably get eaten by some other creature. Like, this, is, this is bad news. We don't do that. We don't just say, like, we're going to get them saved and then we kick them out the door and say, forget about it. No, that's not what the commission is saying. Like, we are to bring about the gospel message Hopefully they they hear it and are converted by it. They're saved by it. And and once they have conversion or new birth, we start needing more for them. They they need more. Jesus calls us when he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Once again, we're not teaching them to observe what I command, but what Jesus has commanded. We're we're making disciples of Jesus. And this is a lifelong task. This, This will never end. Romans 8 says this. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into What? The image of his son. This is where we're going. We're teaching people to be conformed to the image of his son. And as a church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples through evangelizing the lost and what? Equipping the saints. Our, our statement fits here. New believers, or any believer on this side of heaven, must be nurtured, must be grown, must be equipped, must be shown how to walk like Jesus. And so we must proclaim the gospel. We must start then teaching them to obey and observe all that Jesus has commanded. And so this requires all of the Bible. We don't pick on a few texts. All that he has commanded, all of the scripture, we need to learn how to do. So there's ongoing education. There's ongoing teaching. There's ongoing equipping of believers. What does Paul do? He goes to different cities and he proclaims the gospel, right? But he doesn't just leave it at that. When he leaves those cities, he's, he's trying to raise up pastors and elders, those who would watch over them, to equip them further to do all that Jesus has commanded them. So he doesn't just do one or the other. He does, he does both. He, he raises up, it says, elders in, in every church. He wants people there to, so that other believers can grow, can be matured, can grow in their likeness of Christ Jesus. And as the church, we exist to do this. This is part of the Great Commission. And so we have to be a church that works to make disciples by teaching believers to observe all that Jesus has commanded them, to obey Him. In Ephesians, it says that He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So so Jesus has left behind people with certain gifts to, to work at teaching so that people could observe all that Jesus has commanded. Notice in all these apostles and prophets, evangelists, whatever we say about all those things, there's most definitely attached to those the proclamation of the Word of God. That is always attached to all of those offices that he lists there. And so the Word of God is central for the equipping of the saints, for the teaching to observe all that Jesus has commanded. He says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching one with all wisdom, that we may present everyone Mature in Christ. This is what we're working for as a church. We want everybody to be mature in Christ. And, and, and before we think that's just for pastors, that's just for those who are gifted in certain areas, we, we need to be reminded, as we were reminded in 1 Corinthians 12, that God has given us a body with lots of different parts, and all of the body parts are to be working for the building up, for the good of the entire body. And so everybody takes a part of this. The whole body is to be at work. The local church, then, as a body, is essential for discipleship. It's irreplaceable for building disciples. Involvement, then, in a local church is essential for growing in likeness to Christ Jesus because you have to have body parts around you because an eye can't, can't hear very well, and we need an ear, right? And, and so we need a body around us to do this, to be faithful to this commission. So, we want to be known not as the cool church, not that you probably thought that as you walked into our building. We want to be known not as the church that, that does things right. We don't want to be known as this church, we want to be known as the, the disciple making church. That's what we want to be known for the, the disciple making church, the church that, that is honed in on making disciples of all nations. But once again, that task is, is overwhelming. Evangelize the lost in Enid, in the world, three billion of them, equipping them then, teaching them. How are we going to do all that? We're just a small church here in Enid. This is a huge task for a small church. And once again, may we not forget the end of this passage, that the one who has all authority has commanded us and he has promised us this behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He he's said, I have all authority, and he said, and I'm always with you to the end to the end of the age. And so we we go and we baptize and, and we teach with the very presence of Jesus with us. And so we, we don't go alone we don't go alone in that we're called together to go make disciples, and we don't go alone in that the very presence of Jesus is always with us. This is his promise. So are you doubting and fearing? You can know that there's one who has all authority who's addressing you, and he's going to be with you through every step of the way. So Jesus, shortly after this, this commission, this kind of commencement address, he ascends into heaven. He told the disciples before, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and he leaves us here as disciples. And we're, we are the away team now. Right? Our, our home is in heaven with Jesus. We are to be with him. We're the away team here on the earth. We live as sojourners and exiles. We are travelers. This isn't our home. We're not taking up permanent residence here. We're, we're heading in a direction toward our permanent rightful home with Jesus because of what he has done in our lives. But we must not make the mistake that these disciples make. If you look in Acts chapter 1. Verse 9, he says, And when they said these things, they were looking up on he who was lifted up. And a cloud took him, speaking of Jesus, and he took them, him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven one sense, like, we like, this is a neat sight to see Jesus taken up into heaven, so, like, I'd probably gaze at it too. But here's the point is that, is that Jesus has, has finished his work. He's going to take his rightful place in heaven. He has left us here with a great mission and a task, and we are not to be just looking up to him. We are to start getting about his business. So let's be assured that the one who has all authority and who will be with us to the end of the age has sent us and not stand gazing. Let's be assured that our risen king will surely also return one day. And let's start going about his business until that day comes when he comes back. This is what the church exists for. As a church of Jesus Christ, we exist to glorify God by making disciples through evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints. Let's own that together. Father in heaven, we, we want to thank you for still loving us in our fears and our doubts and our unbelief and for addressing us and sending us. God, you are merciful and gracious, and it's amazing to think that you would send even us to the ends of the earth so that you might be proclaimed and so that you might be glorified in and worshiped by people who have not known you. God, you sent people to us when we didn't know you. May we be those people here in Enid and to the ends of the earth. Help us as a church to be faithful to this commission that you have given to us. And may your name be glorified in its doing. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.